dive in, our members dive in to whatever the project is wholeheartedly. And some have more creative roles than others, but everybody realizes that the goal is to contribute to the story that's being told. We were on that line every single day, except for when we were in negotiations. We were putting in 16 to 18 hour days. We made sure our, our, our strike ran 24 seven. So we weren't there just in the daytime. We were there, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning with the members. I remember people saying like a decade ago, manufacturing jobs are never coming back. We're never going to see those big factories again. We're going to never see those big job numbers. It's all going to be robots or made in China. Every time it made my ears bleed and it, it burned my blood too, because I do think with policy that we can get things done. We have many cases of abandonment throughout the last 18 months where bad business plans have a net result that a seafarer gets left on board a vessel in a jurisdiction where they don't have authority. There many, many abandonments. It is funny to see, funny in a very dark way, to see people saying, you know, I'm not going to be manipulated by the mainstream media, I'm not going to be manipulated by the scientists, but... I guess I'm happy to be manipulated by these neo-Nazis who are working me to bring me around to these far-right point of views. I mean, I've sold books, but I've never, you know, been paid for a single poem. So that's cool. Yeah. It may be the last time, but I, that's all good. Like I said, one one is enough. So, like, for me, having been on, served on a bargaining team for two years, like, I really learned how to negotiate. And actually, since the pandemic started, I negotiated my rent down. We've heard people say they care about pay equity, health care, job security, career development, diversity initiatives. That became solidified into what is the New York Times Tech Guild. Hello and welcome to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our first show of October. In this week's edition, which will include cars, boats and trains, we'll bring you selections from several of the numerous shows that constitute the Labour Radio Podcast Network. They're all available at labourradionetwork.org. We're going to start this week's show with the threat of a looming strike in Hollywood, where members of IATSE, that's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, are protesting ridiculous hours and inadequate pay. Business agent C. David Cottrell joined Chris LaGrange on Newcom Live to offer the lowdown. The nationwide Nabisco strike may be over, but there are still lessons to be learned from the experience. On the BCTGM Voices project, Michelle Ellis met with Darlene Carpenter from Local 358 in Richmond, who shared her experiences of the picket line. Are manufacturing jobs returning to the US? Scott Paul from the Alliance for Manufacturing visited Rick Smith this week to discuss the Ford Motor Company's plans to invest in new facilities. Radio Labour considers the fate of international seafarers during the pandemic. Rarely afforded the status of essential workers in spite of playing a central role in global supply chains Many have simply been abandoned on vessels at sea or in ports, ineligible to leave because of quarantine restrictions. Stephen Cotton from the International Transport Workers Federation offers details. Cam Smith joined Solidarity Breakfast this week to discuss marauding right-wing mobs on the streets of Melbourne and the ways in which anti-vax and extremist forces are coming together in Australia. 
on the Blue Collar Gospel Hour, Jack Henry joined the show to read a couple of poems from his recently published collection, Driving with Crazy, Living with Madness. Then we return to the Art and Labour podcast, where the crew is joined by Jessalyn Arland, a bargaining committee member at the San Francisco MoMA Union. They discussed, among other things, the dubious privilege of working at MoMA, negotiating rent with your landlord, and the question of if you were to be a train, what type of train would you be? Then lastly, you will not have read in the New York Times about tech workers at the newspaper walking off the job in protest at management's aggressive efforts to resist unionisation. Product manager Nora Keller spoke to Mimi Rosenberg on Building Bridges Radio. This is Patrick Dixon with the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's this week's show. What we are seeing, though, is the attitude with these negotiations is that they're not respecting that creativity. What's up, everybody? Chris Legrand from UConn Blog here, a special episode edition interviewing C. David Cottrell. He is a business agent, a southern business agent and political legislative coordinator for IATSE Local 488, Studio Mechanics Local in the Pacific Northwest. What's that, Brian? That's like uh, Seattle-ish. Yeah, Portland. You said uh, Idaho. I think Idaho and Jeez. Montana. What 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 a big what a big region. So, the Hollywood Collective Bargaining Agreement between the union and the AMPTP. Well, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Gave their last and final and refused to negotiate leading into the leading into bargaining. The main sticking points, I'm going to let uh, C David get into that. Can you just imagine this? It's called the dreaded Friday swing shift. I can't even imagine. Filming starts late in the afternoon on Friday and goes into Saturday morning till 5 a.m. And then they have to be back at work Monday at 5.30 a.m. Why they start this early? I thought creative minds start later in the day. But, hey, that's their business. They know it more than me. Wages are significantly low. I crazy and uh, they're having a vote this weekend whether they want to go on strike which will affect 60,000 hard-working American working families see David what's up brother how are you hey good to have you tell me what is going on with Hollywood and you guys we've reached impasse and we put forth proposals to try to make some make up some ground that we've lost over the years and to really just simply keep our member pay and benefits equal with inflation rates and we these were solid numbers we started this process researching this process over a year ago it was obvious when we came to the bargaining table that the NPTP had not done their homework and and they really did not put forth a set of proposals that matched ours or matched up with with our proposals and were in any way thoughtful. Before I answer some more questions, I mean, this is about basic rights and decent working conditions for people. And like you were mentioning, we have this schedule that when I was working on Grimm, television show for NBC, it was a typical uh, kind of episodic schedule where you would start it out, like you mentioned, like 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning on a Monday. But by Friday, you were called at 4 or 5 p.m. and work into Saturday morning and then have to do it all again, waking up on Monday morning. So we're trying to get contract that will allow for our folks to have adequate sleep, meal breaks. Uh, that's another thing that the employers have been trying to do. We have meal penalties, which fine the employer if, they, if somebody doesn't get their meal break at six hours. But they've been saying, 
We don't care. We'll just pay the meal penalties. So we have people who are not getting not being able to break in a 12, 14, 16 hour day, and they're not getting to step away for a half hour. And and then the turnaround time overnight has been kept to a minimum. And so we're trying to increase that because you can imagine you show up, you drive there half hour, 45 minutes, an hour sometimes to a location. And then at the end of the day, you got to drive home and do that same thing. So you're talking really when you're talking a rest period that's only eight hours or nine hours. And you have to deal with family stuff, right? These are working people who have families who have to deal with the regular world. And then the weekend turnaround, extending that is, our, is another one of our goals because that's been shortened over our contracts. And so we want to try to increase that so that people, if they do, even if they do a Friday, they have adequate rest to come in on Monday. I know that, believe it or not, a lot of, not a lot of people know this. I have a minor in theater from a SUNY school in Syracuse. And I, I, I yeah, <laughs> it's really working out for me. And I had the opportunity to uh, shadow a professional company, came in to do some Shakespeare or some bullshit. I, I forget. Right. And I was just so impressed with their professionalism and their willingness to show me how to do lighting, how to set design and all that good stuff, how to work under pressure. They taught me discipline because at the time I was just a pot smoking kid just who just wanted sure. to bang every girl in the theater, which I never accomplished. But I saw that a lot of my friends who were theater majors loved the work. They didn't care if they made 20 grand. They didn't care how much they made. They were just happy to get a job in the field. Do you feel that these jerks in Hollywood are taking advantage of people like that? Absolutely. I think that what is not being recognized is the value of every crew position as a storyteller, as a contributor to telling the story, whatever the story. And so we we dive in, our members dive into whatever the project is wholeheartedly, and some have more creative roles than others, but everybody realizes that the goal is to contribute to the story that's being told. What we are seeing though is the attitude with these negotiations is that they're not respecting that creativity and they're not respecting most, most importantly, just simply a worker. But there is that extra level, like you're mentioning that these people are invested, our people are invested in helping to tell the story. And so it's, it's beyond just a worker on an assembly line. And I'm not dissing them at all because that's work of course not. well but it is creative manufacturing you know what i mean like it is a manufacturing job or manufacturing entertainment but there is that creative level where we expect a certain higher level of engagement creatively so that people read the script they yeah. know what the scenes are that day they are invested in what's coming next yeah um that's being that's not being acknowledged right now now do you that's a, that leads into my second question where does this attitude come from does our hollywood types traditionally i always thought were like you said creative folks who want to help tell a story who believe in the trade and the craft and are going to do everything to protect it and make it a money maker and make it something that hollywood is our kingship we are not england we do not have a fiefdom we believe in brad pitt he is our lead. Let's be honest right. with ourselves. Right. Do, are the people who are running Hollywood now with the influence of streaming, are they non-creative types? Are they heartless sons yeah. of bitches? Because where we are, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but I'll let you say that. But, but I would say that what we have seen is a shift in the leadership of the studios and the folks that we're bargaining with are now more, uh, they're more on the lawyer financial side and they may never have been on set. Mm. As a, they haven't worked their way up through the industry. They're not creatives, right? So they're bean counter types that have, have made their way into leadership positions in the studios. And it's this corporate mindset that we're feeling has changed the tone of these negotiations from past negotiations. See, David, thank you so much, brother. Stay in touch with us. We'll get this out for you and let us know how it goes, man. 
right, thanks, bye. Thanks, brother. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye now. You too. Yep, all right. Welcome to the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. I will bring the work of our union to you through monthly interviews with the BCTGM's hardworking leaders, organizers, and everyday members. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. Loyal listeners may remember an episode this past July when we spoke to a BCTGM local trustee from the Frito-Lay strike, Chantal Mendenhall. Chantel had run a really positive and successful Facebook page for Local 218's strike action and was gracious enough to share with us her tips and lessons learned from growing 2,000 supporters on social media, essentially by saying thank you. As the multi-location Nabisco strike came together on the heels of this, in the early days of August, I decided to call on a representative from each plant location to be a contributor on a Facebook page called Nabisco Workers Unite. On a Zoom call with the workers, we passed on what was successful from Frito-Lay and asked them to emulate it the best they could. We begin our story in Richmond with Local 358 Financial Secretary and Business Agent Darlene Carpenter. I kind of have said each place has really garnered their own personality through this. For your location, it was these memorable chants that would get stuck in my head and I'd be singing them as I'm going to bed at night. The dance parties in the streets, just very powerful solidarity and tons and tons of social media. So Darlene, talk about the attitude on the line. Last week, you told me that this strike was almost a sigh of relief for your members. It was, you know, the, the way they felt when the pension was taken away back in 2016, all this anger and frustration that had built up in them. When we went out that very first day, I have never, ever seen so many of those employees smiling. It was like it empowered them. And, and they, they were ready for this. This is something they didn't think was going to happen. And when it did happen, I mean, they were joyful. That this was something that they believed in and thought it should have happened a long time ago. And I told them, I said, you know, guys, God put you in a place and this was our time. So this is the most I've ever seen this union down in Richmond come together and have each other's backs. It was great. Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned to me when we spoke before was about uh, you and Keith Bragg. Uh, that's the union president there. For local yes. Time making sure that you were there to address the concerns of your members. Full transparency, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, from day one, Keith and I were out on that line. We were on that line every single day, except for when we were in negotiations. We were putting in 16 to 18 hour days. We made sure our, our, our strike ran 24 seven. So we weren't there just in the daytime. We were there, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning with the members. Um, and we let them know what was going on. You know, if they had questions, we answered them. We were transparent about the entire process, which I think really helped the members. And it, it helped them seeing us out there because we weren't just putting them out there and say strike. We were, you know, 100% vested. This was a movement for all of us to be invested in. 
And I, I think it made a world of difference to everyone. Oh, I'm sure. I keep hearing what a transformative experience this has been. What, what have you learned from going through this? Wow, <laughs> a lot. Um, I guess, as you know, Keith and I both, both and most of the people here in Richmond, this is the first strike ever for any of us. And Keith and I had just taken office in June. So it's just like we walked into a hornet's nest and now we're preparing for a strike. Um, I learned a lot as far as how to set up a strike our people, you know, what they expect during the strike, uh, the solidarity, of course. And, and we've actually been asked, you know, a couple of times now by different organizations, the teachers groups and stuff and unions to speak at their stuff now about how, how to set up a strike. And we're like, wait a minute, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at it, but, you know, we went uh, through a lot of bumps and, you know, we got through it. But now we've learned that if we ever are going to go in this direction again, you know, we're going to make sure we have strike funds set up. We'll, we'll be a whole lot more organized and the people, everyone will be in a better position. If you found this content valuable, please consider sharing it on your own social media pages and be sure to tag us. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org. Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about in the news. Thanks to the rhetoric coming out of this administration about being making things in America, reshoring our manufacturing. Uh, the Ford Motor Company made is making their largest investment in manufacturing in this country in 118 years as they're going to bring a couple of plants to build batteries for the next generation of electric vehicles. Uh, they said $11.4 billion of investment. They say this is going to create about 11,000 new jobs in these three battery plants. I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come talk with us. Scott is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, their website. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick, it is uh, great to be with you, especially with some pretty awesome news for manufacturing. So, so you agree with me? I'm in this place where I'm giving Biden credit for this. I think this is a big part of uh, what's come out of his plan. The push for Buy American, the push for Buy Union, uh, I think yeah. is a huge part of it. I think you're right. There's a couple of aspects of Biden's policies that I think are pushing companies in this direction. One is building demand. And everything the Biden administration is doing on clean energy, on vehicles, is providing consumers incentives to buy cars, manufacturers incentives to build them and to have them built in the United States. So that's number one. Number two, some of the key ingredients in all of this. And batteries is not something we do a lot of now in the United States. In fact, our global market share of batteries is, I think, 7%, maybe even less. And China's global percentage of lithium-ion batteries is like 60%. Or, or above. And 
I think that knowing that this administration wants to wean us off dependence of critical materials like lithium-ion batteries uh, is also pushing investments like this. The Buy America rules that you talk about, like the fact that these vehicles would be eligible to be purchased by the federal government if they're made in America is a big thing. And certainly, and, and I would say this is a continuation of, of, of policy from the prior administration, the Democratic Congress, the, the new rules of the USMCA, that's the, the trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, will specify that a higher percentage of vehicles to be tariff-free have to be made in America, and the big components uh, especially have to be made in America, and they need to be made with good wages as well. And so I think that is an important factor. I, I remember people saying like a decade ago, manufacturing jobs are never coming back. We're never going to see those big factories again. We're going to never see those big job numbers. It's all going to be robots or made in China, and, and we're never going to see this again. Every time it made my ears bleed, and it, it burned my blood too, because I do think with policy that we can get things done. And, yep. and that's a clear example here. So this positions the United States to uh, assume more global leadership in electric vehicles, in battery manufacturing, which obviously is, is where this industry is. So uh, I, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we're making this investment in the United States, as opposed to seeing these companies flee and try to bring the vehicles in from China. Uh, so we're seeing the kind of investment that we need in this technology, which I hope leads to us making more vehicles here at home. Yeah, 100%. Lithium-ion batteries are heavy. They're not easy to ship places. So the, the assembly of those is going to take place very close uh, to, to where those batteries are, are located. That's just the nature of the business. And, and plus, you get that symbiotic relationship between the innovation, what's working on the plant floor, and there really is no substitute for that. And so there's all sorts of good business reasons to believe that this kind of model will succeed. For me, it's the signal in this, and I'm glad you brought up the change in our trade rules. The signal in this for me is that uh, we're no longer just going to be the final assembly place where we sl slap a name on it and say, hey, it was made in the U.S. We're actually going to be manufacturing stuff because you hit on it a second ago. Out of that manufacturing facility then comes uh, the next generation of tinkers and innovators and, and entrepreneurs who are going to change the future. Once you lose those people who go in their garage and go, hey, I can do this differently, uh, I think you lose something. Yeah, absolutely. You sure do. And that's what and, and it creates this whiplash effect that we've seen. We saw the jobs get outsourced. We saw Wall Street totally bet against American manufacturing, want to push everything overseas. The consequence of that is that manufacturing curriculum, both hands-on and knowledge, taken out of the schools, it's getting its way back in, but you lose that. And so when you build things like this, you develop it. And, and you develop the, the research and development too, both the academic research and development, the hands-on research and development, and you'll see these ecosystems develop. And so I'm super excited about it. Awesome, good stuff. But Scott, I appreciate the time. As always, great talking with you. All right, uh, Rick, thanks for having me on. Appreciate all the great work you do as well. Good stuff. Our good friend, Scott Paul, the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Make sure you check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. 
This is a Radio Labor Report recorded on Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. There are about 1.6 million seafarers in the world. They work on vessels which carry about 80% of global trade. The majority come from the Philippines, Indonesia, China, Russia, Ukraine, and India. They are represented globally by the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF. When the pandemic hit in 2020, more than 400,000 seafarers were left on their vessels, not allowed to go home. Stephen Cotton, the General Secretary of the ITF, spoke to Australian media about the current situation. So I would say we're about half that number. Um, But I think, again, for us and the world's seafarers, it's a sense of frustration that the situation evolves all the time, but the situation for the seafarers doesn't. So we have over 60 countries declare seafarers essential workers. The, the right to move across borders does not come automatically with that. So we're at 200,000 over contract at the moment. One of the problems faced by the seafarers is that there are countries which allow themselves to be simple registries of ships and care nothing about regulations such as health and safety rules. They include landlocked nations such as San Marino, which is surrounded by Italy and has no access to the seas. The ITF keeps track of countries which allow so-called flags of convenience. Countries we've added are Cameroon, uh, Cook Islands, Palaio, Sierra Leone, St. Kitts and Nevis, Tanzania and Tagay. And of course, they all look and feel like opportunities for countries to make money out of shipping rather than to regulate and control the shipping environment. So they're quite concerning that despite years of campaigning, countries are still subletting their registers and their flag states and therefore their sovereignty to ship owners that don't want to be responsible. The long history kind of links with lots of history from the prohibition period around shipping when American ship owners were uh, using Panamanian flag to run bootleg whiskey and other issues. So there's always been an issue about flags of convenience, as we describe it. Ship owners call it open registers, where people avoid responsibility. And, you know, today is as relevant as it was in the 1920s. The men and women who work as seafarers are often subjected to serious health and safety problems. These have been exacerbated because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Occupational health and safety are not the primary issues they should be. We felt throughout this COVID period and um, our seafarers and a number of the other transport modes to keep the world supply chain going haven't had due respect that we felt they should. So we've been lobbying um, the UN and other players to get them key essential worker status. But there are still too many, particularly in moments of crisis like this pandemic has brought on, where ship owners, and let's say that not all ship owners are like this, some are better than others, um, substandard ship owners will run unsafe ships and as simple as drinkable portable water uh, is not available for them. Another problem faced by seafarers is that some substandard employers will simply abandon their vessels and leave the workers on the ships. They can't get off because they do not have the right to enter the country where the ship has been abandoned. We have many cases of abandonment throughout the last 18 months where 
bad business plans have a net result that a seafarer gets left on board a vessel in a jurisdiction where they don't have authority. There are many, many abandonments. Our figures for uh, 2020, 85 cases. Which, when, And when we talk about abandonment, we mean sort of like it's giving your car back. The vessel just sits there at anchor. If you can get anchor, bear in mind it costs you to port and berth. 2019, we had 35. 2018, we had 38. And these are cases where the ship owner shuts up shop and leaves the seafarers on board a rusting, unsafe vessel. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Today we're going to uh, listen to some responses to the fascist maraudering in Melbourne this week. It just seemed a little bit too far to stretch to ignore it. I sought out uh, someone to have a chat to cogitate about the happenings happening here in Melbourne over the uh, past week with the right-wing fascists uh, doing a strut across this, the city and the police in with all their toys, including rubber bullets, enjoying the festive occasion and so I sought out Cam Smith who runs a, a, a program on 3CR called uh, Ye Na Pasaran which in, in, involves itself in the uh, dissection of uh, the um, ebbs and flows of uh, conspiracy theorists etc etc and a very popular program on 3CR and in the present period anyway Cam and I had a yarn we about just came to pass. Why I wanted to talk to you was about the demonstrations, of course, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get your opinion about how big a role trolls played in what we saw in Melbourne over the last week. I think that they had a little bit to do with it. I think that the original thing that happened was probably quite genuine, at least in terms of the idea that there are people in the construction industry that have these views. And so there were people out the front of the CFMEU who were in the construction industry. They might not necessarily have been in the union, but they were there for that reason. But what we saw on Monday was that after those people were initially there, the call out went out in these telegram groups for the different anti-vaxxer organisations to get down there. And then you saw those people showing up throughout the day And so I think that, yeah, the proportion of people who at least work in the industry to people who were there for their own reasons shifted throughout the course of Monday. And then, of course, on Monday afternoon, you saw the call-out going out on the anti-vax groups. Everyone come down Tuesday morning. And so I think Tuesday morning, you saw a lot more of those trolls there, people who have their own agenda, who... I think that if you were to go back and <laughs> probably look at their politics, you'd say these are not people that are normally on the side of a union. They're not actually normally people who are on the side of freedom, the sort of freedoms that they purport to be in favour of. So yeah, there was definitely more of that element on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, I don't know if you've been to many union rallies, but they don't often uh, end up at the Shrine of Remembrance. No. 
no, that was pretty weird. And the other thing that I found really interesting looking at it on the first day was things like um, across the road from the union office, the CFMEU's office, was a electronic sign. I don't know if anybody actually noticed it, but it was on the back of a truck and it had things on it that said things like, we built this city and stuff like that. But they're not inexpensive. And mm. so th there was intent involved. That's what I was interested in. Yeah, I think that there's a bit of money involved here because there's this sort of existing anti-vax apparatus that predates the pandemic. These groups that are trying to, they don't want their kids, they have all of these conspiracy theories and ideas about vaccinations and they didn't want things like primary school teachers and nurses already having to get vaccinated because they have their own ideas about that. Now that they've seen the pandemic as this opportunity to, re to recruit because there's more of an opportunity to push this idea now that everyone's talking about getting vaccinated, they definitely have mobilised. And their crowdfunding, like I think the money is coming from people. I don't know if it's necessarily an AstroTurf operation, but they're... There are some deep pockets that are financing some of this stuff. And, yeah, it's not exactly grassroots. Mm. And so the other thing is that there will be people who do hold these views. However, and they've always held these views, right? For example, they may even homeschool their children and things of that nature. Because in, in Victoria, you can't send your child to school unless they've got a, a vaccination record. Mm. So quite clearly, they must have already had views of ta taken action, the people who actually hold these views. Yeah, so that's out there. And if you want to separate yourself from society and ha hold those views, that's fine. But I think... I suppose what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is the um, opportunistic nature of creating a, a recruiting basis on something that people who aren't necessarily anti-vaxxers but who have actually other intent. Yeah, so there are people out there and we've seen them over the course of the pandemic working on these groups. So they see these groups that are open to conspiracy theories and they're, I would say, naive about political entryism and they see that as an opportunity. So I'm talking about far-right groups now. They see that as a potential recruiting ground because it's not a huge leap to say to these people who are saying I think there are shadowy forces at work uh, and that's why things are going the way they're going rather than saying that's capitalism <laughs> you're watching like capitalism at play you can say to them well that's the Jews doing that and they're very open to that sort of messaging because they already think that this there's this shadowy cabal working at things and so it's they see them as an easy recruiting ground and they're probably not. But they themselves could, could be considered to be the shadowy cabal. Yes, <laughs> there is that. Like, they are literally conspiring. Like, they are not organically coming together and doing this. They, they've seen an opportunity and they're manipulating them. And so it is funny to see, funny in a very dark way, to see people saying, you know, I'm not going to be manipulated by the mainstream media. I'm not going to be manipulated by the scientists. But... I guess I'm happy to be manipulated by these neo-Nazis who are working me to bring me around to these far-right uh, point of views. Welcome to the Blue Collar Gospel Hour. I'm your host, Dan Denton. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest, Jack Henry, has a new collection of poetry out called Driving With Crazy, Living With Madness. It's out on Punk Hostage Press. 
The Press have published my first book, $100 a Week Motel. Jack is a writer, publisher, and editor based in southeastern California. He's been an announcer on the blog talk radio show, Robin Jack America, and the publisher of Heroin Love Songs. He's been writing since 2009, at least that's when he started to gain acceptance, with a variety of online and print lit zines. He's got several chapbooks, as well as two previous full-length collections, with The Patience of Monuments by Neil Poses Press and Crunked by Epic Rights Press, including his new collection, Out Everywhere Now, from Punk Hostage Press, called Driving With Crazy, Living With Madness. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, man. Jack's coming to us from Los Angeles area of California, and he's going to start right out reading poems. Thanks for inviting me to the show. I, I do appreciate it. I'm a fellow punk hostage colleague here. So, yeah, we're going to jump right into it. This is called Addiction. Addiction lays you bare, deep in your skull. Dreams and life and love disrupted, torn away, shattered. Empty glasses smashed against stone. It starts young, a gentle breeze, smooth and slow without conditions, until you suddenly snap back to life, screaming. You try to hide it, the madness, insanity, bipolar aberrations. It will bury you in shame, dark shadows, no breathing, but the art of deception will always keep you whole. Death dealer, death dealer's circle on shiny jet thermals. Wait for the signature, full compliance, desecration of the soul. Bury the humiliation in vaults made of concrete outside the prison, the cage behind lock and key. You taste it still wet in your fingers, wet copper or gun metal sticks to your tongue. It's right here in plain sight, but no one turns left at the single signal. No one can see light fall from the stars. There are doctors and 12 steps and hope for a future. But once it has caught you, the coils never forgive. There is pain and survival when you dream of surrender. But if you don't face the mirror, how can you face the truth? I'm going to read this one. I, I tend to always read this one because it's the only poem I won a prize for. I was a featured poet in Starbucks, better than Starbucks. Super proud of that. And it's, it's one of the poems I've started writing. I don't know if it's a real style, but it's a split poem. So like one half of the page it's going to be in the presence or on a singular topic. And then the other side of the page is an abstract. So I got a note to ask you about that poem because I was, uh, I was blown away by it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So that's what, and, and the, the secondary conversation is supposed to illuminate what the first part of the reader is, is trying to get through. And it'll make sense once I read it. So out to kill rabbits. The first day we dressed out in the high school gym, Jim, a senior boy punched me in the face, called me a queer as a choir of boys howl in derision. A rabbit sits atop a grassy knoll, eats grass and watches for danger. At 16, I had yet to accept my awkwardness, long legs and gangly arms, acne, sadness, and general ineptitude. A rabbit hides during daylight and thick bushes are down holes in the earth, fearful of predators and potential death. Throughout 10th grade, everyone picked on me, put me in a corner, bullied me into complete sorrow, but I learned to fight, learned to shout them down, learned to run, learned to keep my secrets locked down tight. Coyotes and wolves and kids with rocks stalk the rabbit, but if the rabbit is smart, they stay safe. They must always be smarter than those that wish them harm. Senior year, I reached full height, full strength, mind quick and nimble and more clever than bullies. I outgrew the noise of high school, but not before breaking bones and crushing souls. 
A rabbit cornered can be a fearsome thing, and they will fight for survival when running away is no longer an option. Just after winter break, senior year, I found myself in front of the damning gaze of a vice principal, his face red, voice rough from yelling, I had become the bully. A rabbit's life is short due to so many predators. Life in the wild is always a struggle. Upon graduation, I left high school, never looked back. I still break bones of predators out to kill rabbits. Hmm. In poem. That's a hell of a poem, man. So you won a prize for that? It was a featured writer. So it's the only time I've ever been paid for a single poem. I mean, I've sold books, but I've never, you know, been paid for a single poem. So that was cool. Yeah. It may be the last time, but I, that's all good. Like I said, one, one is enough. Hey, Stephen King uh, wrote in his book on writing that if you've ever cashed a check or bought a cup of coffee or a meal or paid part of your electric bill with something you wrote, then you're a good writer. Yeah. So there you uh, go. I'll accept that. Yeah, me too. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on, Jack. All right, Dan. Thanks so much. Have a good night. All right. Talk to you soon. Hello, listening public, and welcome to another episode of Art and Labor, your favorite podcast. We talk about all kinds of things, sometimes art, sometimes not art. People are saying that Art and Labor is their favorite podcast. It's, hey, we have fun. That's our motto. Favorite or the one that's going to make them drive off a cliff? Both. Oh. Both. <laughs> Whoa, we can't afford to lose listeners. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They <laughs> need you. Well, today, today is great. We're we're back on topic. We're really hitting our uh, tried and true notes. We are talking with a special guest Jessalyn from Holland. Ah, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm... Yeah, Jessalyn. So you're from the SF MoMA organizing committee. I or... have been previously. So I worked at SF MoMA for five years, and now I'm an artist and arts worker who makes art around uh, systems and labor organizing. And so I have a project called Organizing Power that really aims to make tools for organizing unions and doing union work at arts and nonprofits. And I collaborate with two of my former colleagues at SFMOMA, one who's still there. All of us um, are involved in labor in different ways. And it's really just about spreading the labor movement to arts workers. So... Yeah, at SFMOMA, it's one of the largest unions, museum unions. It's the second oldest. MoMA is the oldest art museum union. And the SFMOMA union is coming up on 50 years. So it's a pretty entrenched nice. institution there, I'd say. It's over 200 people in it, including part-time people, which is really great. They're covered by the union contract. So I worked in education wow. for there for five years. And as many people in the art world will know, SFMOMA underwent a really huge expansion from 2013 to 2016. That was the time I joined. Opened this like giant whale of a new museum. And then a couple year, I think like a year into that, we had to, we had a wage reopener. So it became a really vicious struggle. I was on the bargaining team uh, for that. And the museum really refused to budge and give people what they need. That's like a common thread from arts workers is that museums expand. They do this huge expansion, get lots of money, don't give it to the workers. And we've definitely been told yeah. that story on. And we started seeing a lot. Oh, sorry, I live. I love the train. We I love trains down wow. here. We're big train people. No, Me go too. right ahead. It's a whole other podcast topic then. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. At the end, we can talk about our train sonas. So everybody, oh, yeah. stay tuned to the end, and we'll share. Okay. Oh yeah, foamers. We'll get weird at the end. But yes, you're talking about how the museum has all the money in the world for expansions and none for its workers. We went through a really, I think, like kind of public. Uh, struggle around that and started connecting with other arts workers. MoMA started an Instagram account. We were really inspired by that and we're like, we'll start an Instagram account and just did a lot of organizing that became public. We had to go into federal mediation to agree to that. And this was just a wage increase. It wasn't even an entire contract that we were bargaining. And then the following year, we had to bargain the entire contract, which also, so it was like two years of bargaining with this team of colleagues. A lot of them, were there was some shifting but I've always been really interested in organized labor. I used to be a public school teacher. And so I decided to join the bargaining team and work with my colleagues on this contract. And we we're essentially bargaining for two years with two federal mediations and almost went to arbitration. And just through the process of working with my colleagues top and down across the union, it's you find out how little people know about labor and how even like what a union is, like the common thing you'll hear is that, what am I paying these dues for? I'd rather keep that money. And you think the union, a union is this like abstract force outside of you, but really once you're involved in it, you realize a union is what you contribute to it. So I, while I was still working there and still on the bargaining team, I just really wanted to make these tools accessible to other people like me who maybe like also in the Bay Area and around the country, like now we're seeing the effects of this, but there's been this huge wave of people unionizing at museums. And so I thought, what if there was like an easy way for people to access that info and find out like what a union is and what a union does? So that's the first booklet I made. And what if it was like a cool risograph printed booklet that appealed to arts workers? Because yeah. a lot of the stuff around labor aesthetically is from the past. It's awesome, but it's dispersed on union websites all over the internet. And it's just that like- That made in 2006. I, I don't know. It's like something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's no, all, and they haven't you know, been updated since 2006. Exactly. And they're like chunky yeah. and with not very updated union They run logo, on Flash. And it's really buried under <laughs> five- or, yeah, or you totally it, do. Yeah. it's hard to get a, a an artist to read an entire Jane McAlevey book and get them to transpose <laughs> it to their type of work, which to yeah. be fair, yeah, it can be a little confusing. So it's really just trying to cover the, the breadth of union organizing, but from an art worker. So you can figure out a good way to disseminate that. And that's all, you know, very Yeah. And like the powerful. skills of negotiation are things that you don't always learn, especially in an arts context. So like for me, having been on, served on a bargaining team for two years, like I really learned how to negotiate. And actually since the pandemic started, I negotiated my rent down, a thing I never would have thought Whoa. about. Or that's how it goes. It's, that's, that's, how it goes. Yeah. that's the galaxy yeah. Make brain move. Yeah. magazine for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was really like just dealing with an employer um, yeah. who we always would say is offered two paths and they pick the wrong one every time, pretty much. Always makes it way worse than they need to. And like a, a common refrain was that SFMOMA wants to pay workers at the median of the market rate. And it's all this, yeah, it's this, exactly. It's like, why? We're trying to be a world-class museum, but you're like, mm, yeah, we're going to pay at the median, definitely. Um, and it's a classic. I remember Dana, when she was talking with y'all, just, you want, the, you're just, they're waiting for other workers to come in there. Like, their mm -hmm. workers are disposable, whatever. You'll cycle out here in two years and we'll get someone else. They're really eager to get the psychic benefits of working this cool job. 
and uh, psychic benefits. We don't need institutional memory. Yeah. yeah, they they can't they can't wait to eat the prestige. We we had a refrain in our last bargaining time at us of MoMA of psychic benefits don't pay rent. And it's true. You can't live off that. And But yeah, they look at, they try to act, okay, well, this is, we're all looking at the market and this is the market. So when it came to my rent, I was like, I'm looking at the market and the market has gone down for rent in my area. So therefore, and they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll give you this month of free rent and discount. But I just, it's a skill set yeah. I didn't have going into a bargaining that I now do. So I just, there's a lot of stuff you don't know until you go through the experience. Like you don't know how hard it is. Thank you so much yeah, lovely for to coming talk to talk you. to us. Yeah. Yeah. I- Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to talk about labor with arts workers. Oh yeah. yeah. This was delightful. This was really. Yeah. Hit it off was awesome. So good. <laughs> yep. Every, all of our listeners, I guess that's it for art and labor. You can support What train? Us. What train? Oh, right. The fucking trains. I knew there was something. What else. train are you? What train? <laughs> If you listened this far, you're going to hear what train. <laughs> what train? What train? Um, I, I know what train I am. I'm sorry. Well, you go first. Let us think. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm Vic, and I'm a train that cleans the subway, and mm-hmm. it's it only works really late at night. Mm-hmm. Sounds super crazy, but also, like, the segments of the train are made out of this really like shiny black stuff that looks like latex so the train looks like it's wearing dom gear excellent that's a good train that's hot it's a fucking hot train coolest train (laughs) okay i know i mine came to me while you were talking so yeah i am the mythical x train that never existed that was proposed to exist it was proposed to exist to uh make the m train a circle Ooh, train and X. it's me and i do oh, exist I it. and it, yeah. it's gonna convert the underused and weird one of the weird underused freight lines into public line that could still run freight every once in a while if you have to but it also <laughs> can run the subways and it could be fitted to the subway so it could do both and we wouldn't have to sacrifice either and uh, yeah i don't know and it's versatile <laughs> And and good and real. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> and it closes the M train so that people yeah. who live in fucking Queens can get yeah. to like Northern <laughs> Queens without having to fucking take a cab and use fucking Lyft, which sucks. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're Building Bridges with Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash. How the New York Times kicked its tech workers to the streets over their fight to unionize. Now, we're joined by Nora Keller, New York Times product manager and union organizer to talk about, well, if the New York Times claims to print all the news that's fit to print, why they failed to publish an article about their own tech staff walking off their jobs over the newspaper publishers' illegal efforts to stymie their unionization campaign. I think the response to our unionization efforts being so negative for management came as a real shock to everyone, including the folks organizing the effort. In the very beginning of this, when we started out the process, we asked for voluntary recognition 
which is where we just get a majority of the eligible unit to sign cards saying that they want a union, then the company can choose to voluntarily recognize us. And that's really the easiest, least like contentious way for a unit to be recognized. And the New York Times did this in 2019 for our colleagues in Wirecutter. Truly, uh, I think everyone was expecting that that's how it would go. And so when it didn't, that was pretty shocking. And then like pretty shortly afterwards, the company began its like pretty intense anti-union campaign. All the news that's fit to print, the liberal veneer (laughs) of the New York Times, let's back up. Tell us about the work you do and who is trying to organize And, of course, the story of why you think the Times is being so obstructionist to organizing a union. We are the New York Times Tech Guild, and so we are all of the full-time and regular part-time folks who work for the New York Times websites and mobile applications in the United States. If you go to NewYorkTimes.com or if you open the New York Times on your phone – or mobile application, what you're seeing there is what the folks in our guild have created. Anytime you see a new feature on any of those things, that's something that we've done and we've made possible. So we're made up of engineers, analysts, designers, product managers, which is what I do, and assistants. It's really just a very cross-functional tech unit because the nature of creating things for web and mobile applications takes a lot of hats, a lot of different input, but we all work in this like very team-oriented way to make these things happen. And what are your complaints? Um, and then in terms of issues that we're facing, this effort started very organically. It started with small conversations between colleagues in tech, voicing concerns from office things like a lack of gender-neutral restrooms or lackluster diversity initiatives or pay equity concerns. That's ballooned into a push to create a more worker power-centered workplace so that we could push for the types of changes we wanted to see. That ultimately translated into the effort of forming a union. Since then, union members and organizers have had many conversations with our colleagues all across the tech org. We've made an effort to speak to everyone eligible for the unit in one-on-one conversations to ask them, what do you want to see changed in your workplace? From that, we've heard overlapping ideas in terms of how they want that improved. You know, we've heard people say they care about pay equity, healthcare, job security, career development, diversity initiatives. That became solidified into what is the New York Times Tech Guild. What do we do (laughs) to show our support? The best thing you can do to show support is write to the New York Times, tell them how you feel, give them what for about this. I would not say cancel your subscription. We're not calling for any sort of boycotts or anything like that. It wouldn't necessarily like help. We will put the word out if that's what we go for. It is really helpful to get public pressure on this campaign. You know, the New York Times cares deeply about its brand. They're very upset that we're talking to the press. They're very upset that we've, you know, had a press conference and that we are uh, making public their blunders. But, you know, that uh, ultimately, that that will really matter to them, I think. Is there a number to call or text or email that you might have for those particular names that we should uh, target? So you can go to help.nytimes.com and you can contact, you can send a letter to the editor, you can contact a customer service person. There's a chat function on there. 
or if you want to call on the phone, the customer service number is 1-800-698-4637. So 1-800-698-4637. Let them know how you feel. Well, you're wonderful. I'm ready to cancel whenever you tell me to. (laughs) But I do hope you get to that point. Nora Keller, New York Times product manager and union organizer. This has been Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Educate, agitate, and organize for the empowerment of we the people for another world is possible. reached the end of this week's edition of Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, but if you're not satisfied, there's a lot, lot more at labourradionetwork.org, as well as many shows that we simply didn't have the space to fit into this week's episode. Labour Radio Network shows are similarly available on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag LabourRadioPod. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith, Chris Garlock and myself, Produced by Chris Garlock and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labour Radio Net. And you can find out more on our website at labourradionetwork.org. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next week.